We turn in our Bibles this morning to Matthew 28. Matthew 28. This is ordinarily a chapter we might read on Easter Sunday or in connection with the resurrection of Jesus. We read it this morning, though, in connection with baptism because we find at the end of the chapter the institution of baptism. Matthew 28. In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. And the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he goeth before you into Galilee, and there shall ye see him. Lo, I have told you. And they departed quickly from the sepulchre with fear and great joy, and did run to bring his disciples' word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, All hail! And they came and held him by the feet, and worshipped him. Then said Jesus unto them, Be not afraid. Go, tell my brethren that they go into Galilee, and there shall they see me. Now when they were going, behold, some of the watch came into the city, and showed unto the chief priests all the things that were done. And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large money unto the soldiers, saying, Say ye, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. And if this come to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and secure you. So they took the money and did as they were taught. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye, therefore, and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. On the basis of that scripture and the whole of the scriptures, the Heidelberg Catechism teaches us about baptism in Lord's Day 26. So let's read that now, Lord's Day 26 of the Heidelberg Catechism. How art thou admonished and assured by holy baptism that the one sacrifice of Christ upon the cross is of real advantage to thee? Thus, that Christ appointed this external washing with water, adding thereto this promise, that I am as certainly washed by his blood and spirit 
from all the pollution of my soul, that is, from all my sins, as I am, ex- as I am washed externally with water, by which the filthiness of the body is commonly washed away. What is it to be washed with the blood and spirit of Christ? It is to receive of God the remission of sins freely for the sake of Christ's blood, which he shed for us by his sacrifice upon the cross, and also to be renewed by the Holy Ghost and sanctified to be members of Christ, that so we may more and more die unto sin and lead holy and unblameable lives. Where has Christ promised us that he will as certainly wash us by his blood and spirit as we are washed with the water of baptism? In the institution of baptism, which is thus expressed, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. This promise is also repeated where the scripture calls baptism the washing of regeneration and the washing away of sins. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, last Sunday morning we learned that The Holy Spirit is the one who works faith in our hearts. And the Holy Spirit works faith in our hearts by means of the preaching of the gospel and confirms it by the use of the sacraments. Both the preaching and the sacraments are used by the Holy Spirit to direct our faith to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ On the cross, both the preaching and the sacraments together point our faith to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ upon the cross, and that's how the Holy Spirit works and strengthens and nourishes faith in our hearts. Last time, we focused on his work through the preaching of the gospel. This morning, we begin to look at his work through the sacraments. The Holy Spirit also works through the two sacraments. This morning we make a beginning by looking at the first sacrament, which is baptism. God began to institute baptism when he sent John the Baptist to baptize in the Jordan River in preparation for the coming of the Messiah. We read of that in the Gospels. John the Baptist was the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, And he came preaching the gospel of baptism for the remission of sins. John the Baptist baptized people who confessed their sins, who repented of their sins. He brought them into the Jordan River, and he baptized them as a picture of the forgiveness of their sins. But John also announced that another was coming after him who was mightier than him. And he was not even worthy to tie the shoe latchet or the sandals of this one who was coming. And that whereas John says, I baptize you with water, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And he was speaking, of course, of the coming Messiah, the Lord, the Savior who was coming from heaven. 
Jesus. Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan River, not because Jesus himself was a sinner, but because he bore the sins of his people. And his baptism then became a picture of the fact that he, through his death on the cross, would wash away all those sins. After his death and resurrection, we read of his resurrection in that chapter we read, Matthew 28. After that, Jesus instituted baptism as a sacrament of the new covenant to replace circumcision, which was the sacrament of entrance into the old covenant. Now Jesus gives baptism as the sacrament of entrance into the new covenant, and that is in the text that we read. We read that passage in Matthew 28, which is quoted here in the Lord's Day, because we want to spend a little time looking at the institution and administration of baptism. As you know, one of the marks of the true church of Jesus Christ in the world is the proper administration of the sacraments. We need to understand, then, what is the proper administration of the sacraments this morning of baptism. We're also going to notice this morning the rich spiritual salvation meaning in the sacrament of baptism. So I call your attention to the Lord's Day under that theme, Holy Baptism. We're going to notice first the administration of baptism, secondly the meaning of baptism, finally the calling to baptize. Let's consider three things in regard to the administration of baptism. Three things which are vitally important and without which you don't have a Christian baptism. There are three main elements which are necessary for a proper administration of baptism. In the first place, Christian baptism is a baptism in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Without that, you don't have a Christian baptism. That's what our Lord says in the passage we read, verse 19, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. There are people today and have been who do not baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but they baptize in some other way with some other formula. But those who baptize people not using the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have not performed a Christian baptism. They have baptized a person into their group, which may be called a church, or may be considered a cult, or some other religion, but that is not a Christian baptism. Jesus teaches us what is a Christian baptism, one in the name of the triune God. Why do churches, cults, and groups not baptize people in that name. It's because they don't believe in the triune God. They believe that God is one. They do not believe that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all equally God. And so they refuse to baptize in that way. We have been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as a Christian baptism. Why is that so important? Well, I call your attention to the fact that in the original Greek, in Matthew 28, Jesus actually says literally, baptizing them into the name 
of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Into that name. And when he says that, Jesus is showing the great significance of that. Baptism in the Christian church is a sign and seal that an individual has been baptized into communion with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's the rich significance of baptism in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are the three persons of the Trinity who dwell together in the Godhead in eternal, intimate, sweet communion and fellowship. And baptism into that name is therefore a sign and seal that through the power of the Holy Spirit, we have been brought into communion with the triune God, into fellowship with God. In the Old Testament, there was a great type of baptism that we already sang about in the Psalms. That was the type of the exodus of Israel from Egypt. Now, if you think about that, the nation of Israel was in Egypt, and they were in bondage to Pharaoh and the Egyptians, laboring under the hot sun. They were slaves. They were in a communion of slavery with the people of Egypt. But God severed them from that communion of slavery, and he brought them through the midst of the Red Sea on dry ground, causing the walls of the sea to stand next to them. And they going through the midst on dry ground and through to the other side. And the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, All our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They were baptized through the sea. Baptized, meaning they were brought out of that communion of slavery to Pharaoh into communion with their God, Jehovah, in his covenant. And he brought them into the land of promise and rest to have communion with him there. Baptism is a sign and seal that we are being brought into communion with God. And God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You remember in the baptism form in the back of the Psalter, the Reformed Fathers taught us that we are baptized in the name of the Father because the Father witnesses and seals to us that he establishes an eternal covenant of grace with us and he adopts us to be his children and heirs. The Father promises us in baptism, I establish my covenant with you to draw you into sweet communion with me. The Son witnesses and seals to us that he has given himself on the cross and shed his blood for us to establish that covenant of grace, to establish that covenant of sweet fellowship and communion with God. Jesus Christ, by his death on the cross, has broken our communion with Adam and with sin, and he has established our relationship with God. And the Holy Ghost, in baptism, witnesses to us that he now brings us into the conscious experience of that communion through Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit brings us into that communion with God. We are baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as a sign and seal to us, a promise to us in baptism that God brings us into his fellowship in the covenant of grace. 
And therefore, it is extremely important that we be baptized in the name of the triune God. In the second place, the proper administration of baptism is a baptism that is performed by a minister of the gospel in the church. There are lots of churches today which allow anyone to baptize anywhere and any way that they please. They set hardly any regulations to baptism, but anyone can do it any way. I remember when we were in the Philippines, I was very struck by that. I was not aware that that was actually the case, that there are churches that practice such a thing. But we became aware of that one day when we heard the news that a number of the dads in the missionary school where our children attended were going to be baptizing their children. The dads were going to baptize their own children in the swimming pool up on the grounds of the school on a particular day. And I was amazed to hear such a thing. What? The dads are going to baptize their own children? But that's evidently very common out there in the church world. And perhaps they would try to defend that practice and say, well, did not John the Baptist simply bring people down into the dirty Jordan River and baptize them there? And and didn't Philip the Evangelist go to the Ethiopian eunuch and when he preached to him in the chariot, then he stopped and they just went down into a dirty old pond on the side of the road and he baptized him there. And and what about uh, Peter? He went into the house of Cornelius And he just baptized Cornelius right there in his own house. It doesn't matter where you baptize or how you baptize or who baptizes. Oh, but it does. For in the first place, you won't find in the scriptures even a single reference of a baptism that was done by someone who wasn't called, ordained, and sent to do that baptism. John the Baptist. God himself sent John to baptize. Philip the evangelist was also ordained into the office of evangelist to baptize as well as preach the gospel. Peter was an apostle. And right here in our text, Jesus authorized the apostles, the 11 apostles, and then later also the apostle Paul, although Paul says, I was not sent to baptize. Nevertheless, he did baptize and was authorized to do that. Baptism may only be performed by someone who is given the authority from Christ to do that. Christ does not give that authority to every Christian. He does not give that authority to the women of the congregation. He does not give that authority even to all of the men in the congregation. But he only gives the authority to baptizing to those who are specially called and separated to the ministry of the word and sacraments. The form for the ordination of ministers in the back of our Psalters states that the duties of a minister are not only to preach the gospel, but also this, to administer the sacraments, as is evident from the command given by Christ to the apostles, and in them to all pastors. That's what we read in our ordination form, that when Christ gave that calling to the apostles, the Reformed Fathers said he was giving that authority to all pastors. Furthermore, we must remember that when John, Philip, Peter, and Paul went about 
and baptized. It is true that they sometimes baptized in strange places, like in a river or in a pond or in a house. And we don't do that anymore. Our church order states in Article 56, as the young people recently studied, that baptism will be happening in the public assembly when the word of God is preached. That's the church order for Reformed churches, which means that in our denomination, no baptism will take place out in a river or a pond or a lake or in a swimming pool, but will always take place in the church, in the public assembly. But what are we then to say about those early baptisms in the book of Acts? Well, we can say this at least, that it was the very earliest part of the new dispensation, the earliest stage of the history of the Christian church. And there were hardly any established churches at that time. How can baptism take place in the established church if there are no established churches or only a few? This was a time in which there was a great bursting forth of missionary endeavor in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Ethiopia, Syria, and throughout the Roman Empire. And a special authorization was given to the apostles to baptize in ways that today seem very strange to us. The important thing, then, is to remember that baptism is first to be done in the name of the triune God, and secondly, by an ordained minister of the gospel. In the third place, a Christian baptism is obviously a baptism with water. If there's no water, there's no baptism. Water is the visible sign of baptism, just as bread and wine are the visible signs of the Lord's Supper. There has to be a visible sign, otherwise it's not a sacrament. The visible sign in baptism is water. I'm not aware of any cult or church that does not use water in baptism. But there are many, many churches who insist that the sign of baptism is not the sprinkling of water, but the full immersion in water. We know that that is a very common view. And so a lot of churches throughout the lands and throughout the world have in their very architecture of their church building, up in the front, a large tub of water, which is large enough and deep enough to bring an adult believer down into the tub so that there the minister can dunk the person under the water in full immersion so that they will then be baptized. That's the doctrine of full immersion. Now, we don't have any objection to full immersion. The Reformed churches never have. There's nothing wrong with that. And it's very possible that the apostles did often do that when they brought them down into the river, into the lake, that there was perhaps a full immersion. There is indeed something very beautiful about full immersion. If we remember what the sign and seal of baptism is from our own catechism, it's that just as the filthiness of the body is washed away by water, so also the filthiness of the soul is washed away by the blood and spirit of Christ. Now, when your body gets filthy, you don't just sprinkle a little water on it, but you fully immerse yourself in a bath, in a tub, or in a shower. And through the full immersion of your body, you wash away the filth through a lot of scrubbing. There's something very beautiful about the figure that we see in full immersion. But in the Reformed churches, 
we have maintained from the very beginning that full immersion is not necessary for baptism. And often it is not very appropriate for baptism either because we believe in infant baptism and you're not going to fully immerse probably a little baby. We do not believe that full immersion is necessary for baptism and often it's not the most convenient way to perform baptism and so it has become the custom of Reformed churches almost everywhere and almost without exception that baptism is done through sprinkling or pouring or dipping as the baptism form puts it. It's very possible, after all, that even baptisms in the early church were not all done through immersion, but also through sprinkling or pouring. Just think of the fact that on Pentecost, Peter baptized 3,000 people on one day. Did he really fully immerse them in water? And now think of the fact that Peter did that in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a city up on a mountain. It's far away from streams and rivers and ponds and lakes. Where did Peter perform all of these full immersions? Did he go inside of the houses of people and dunk them in the bathtubs? Or did he bring them to the pool of Gihon or the pool of Bethesda? That's possible, of course, but it also seems very likely that Peter used some kind of sprinkling or pouring. Christian baptism is one that is performed in the name of the triune God by a minister of the gospel, who is ordained into his office by the church, by Christ through the church, and thirdly, involves the application of water, however that is done. It's very important that we understand that baptism is the application of water, whether that's immersion, sprinkling, pouring, or dipping. It is with water. That's the important thing. Water. Water is not only something that we drink. In Scripture, the symbolism of water is often that you drink it when you're thirsty to quench your thirst. But the symbolism of water is also that it washes, it cleanses. It's the universal cleansing agent. That's the symbolism of baptism. That's the meaning of baptism. So notice the meaning The sacrament of baptism is a sign and seal of the complete washing away of all my spiritual guilt and corruption. The complete washing away. As the baptism form indicates to us, the principal parts of baptism are three, and the first of those is that we with our children are conceived and born in sin. That's the first principal part of baptism. We are spiritually filthy and corrupt. In Adam, we and all men fell into sin. We became spiritually filthy, morally corrupt. And the fire of everlasting hell is necessary to cleanse us. That's how filthy and stained and corrupt We are, by our sins. The fire of hell is needed to cleanse us. The scriptures, the whole Old Testament, testifies of the sinfulness of mankind. It speaks of the sinfulness of the nations, of Egypt and Assyria and Babylon, of Moab and 
and Ammon and Edom and Syria, who all went after their own lusts, worshiping their own idols of their own making. And they tempted the Israelites, and the Israelites also caved into those temptations and worshiped those idols of the Canaanites and committed all the abominations of the heathen, even though the Israelites were baptized through the Red Sea. They were brought out of the land of Egypt, and God reminded them in the law, I am the Lord your God, who have brought you out of the land of Egypt. I baptized you through the Red Sea. I brought you into communion with myself in my covenant, and yet throughout the period of the wilderness and the period of the judges, and the period of the kings, again, again, and again. The children of Israel corrupted themselves, worshiping Baal and Ashtaroth and all of the abominations of the heathen, offering up their children as fire sacrifices to Molech, committing sexual immorality with the temple prostitutes of the idol gods. Constantly, again and again, they went about satisfying their lusts, making themselves filthy and corrupt and defiled and putrid before God. And we are no different. Just like all men, we too have fallen in Adam. We are conceived and born into this world spiritually filthy. And when we bring our precious babies for baptism in that beautiful white what a baptism garment, we perhaps sometimes forget the fact that that baby was also conceived and born in sin, spiritually filthy and corrupt, and that's why we bring it for baptism. Because that baby, just like us, needed to be cleansed, washed. The baby is filthy. We all are. And even though we have been baptized, we've received the sign and the seal of the water sprinkled on our heads when we were little ones. And we've been baptized into communion with God, yet we continue to fall back into sin, to multiply sin in our lives. And we even sometimes try to minimize those sins and to excuse those sins and to justify those sins. And by that, we make ourselves even more putrid in the eyes of God. And an awful stench floats up toward heaven as we wallow like swine in the mud and reek with the stench of our sins from day to day, returning like a dog to its vomit. Continuing in the old patterns of boasting and bragging about ourselves, of swearing and yelling in anger at other people, desiring revenge, of harboring in our hearts bitterness and resentment toward our spouse, of allowing ourselves to have sexually unclean thoughts, lusts, and desires eating and drinking to excess, gossiping about each other, foolish jesting, rash judging, selfish complaining and murmuring, and all manner of sins that we minimize. We say, oh, they're not so bad, they're just little sins. But by those sins, we make ourselves filthy with the muck of spiritual corruption. That's the symbolism of baptism, you see. We're filthy. We're sinners. And there's nothing that we can do to cleanse ourselves. Nothing we can do. Because what is needed to cleanse us is the everlasting and eternal flames of hell. The wrath of God burning against us, pushing us down into the everlasting desolation. The hell fire that burns forever and ever is the only thing that can 
cleanse, but it burns forever and ever. So there is no way that we can cleanse ourselves. That first of all. And the gospel of baptism is that God has done what we cannot do. God has sent his beloved and precious son with whom he enjoys sweet and eternal communion in the Trinity, sent him into our flesh to become one of us, to shed his precious blood on the cross, to cleanse the pollution of our souls. That's the gospel. It's the gospel of baptism. Whenever we see the water sprinkled upon the head of an infant of believers or an adult believer, who was not baptized as an infant and came to faith as an adult, whenever we see the sprinkling of that water, we are to observe in that a visible sign of what God has done for us through Christ's blood. We are to see in that sprinkling of water that Christ came to shed his blood. He did the hard work of scrubbing and scrubbing and scrubbing our putrid, corrupt souls as he hung there on the cross enduring the flames of God's wrath and hell. So that in that sprinkling of water, God promises to me as a child of God and a believer that he has most certainly and fully and freely washed away all my sins, all my boasting, all my foolish jesting, all my mocking, all my resentment, All my lust, all my complaining, all my criticizing and judging, all my drunkenness, all my sexual immorality, he's washed it all away through the shedding of his precious blood. The Catechism says, what is it to be washed with the blood of Christ? What is it? What does that mean? What is the symbolism of baptism? The sprinkling of water, what does that mean? It is to receive the remission of sins freely for the sake of his blood. It is to receive the full forgiveness of all my sins. It is to receive free justification. Justification. God declares to me in the sprinkling of that water, I have justified you of all your sins and I have forgiven you fully and freely without any works that you must do. All we see is the sprinkling of the water. But what we ought to imagine in that is the full immersion of that person that completely purifies and washes away every tiny speck, even our foolish attempts to excuse our sins. Justification, but also sanctification. The gospel of baptism is not only that through his precious blood, Christ has justified us freely, but also that through his spirit, he sanctifies us more and more. The catechism says, what is it? be washed with the blood and spirit of Christ. It is to receive the remission of sins and it is to be renewed 
by the Holy Spirit more and more. The Holy Spirit renews us. He changes our lives. When you hear that Jesus Christ gave himself for you to wash away all of your sins, the Holy Spirit works through that to renew you, to hate those sins, and to flee from them again. When we see the sprinkling of the water, we are observing a sign and seal not only of what God has done, but what he is doing and what he will continue to do until the day that we die and go to heaven. And that is his renewing and sanctifying work. Sanctification is not our work, but God's work. God works in us to wash us, to cleanse us, so that we put off the old man of sin more and more, and so that we live with clean hands and a pure heart more and more. We live holy and unblameable lives. That's the symbolism of baptism. Not only justification, but sanctification. Not only forgiveness, but renewal. When we think of baptism, we are not just to see there, there's my justification. All my sins are forgiven. Yes, and there's my sanctification. That lifelong struggle and battle with sin that the Spirit works in me so that I hate my sin more and more and flee from it. That's the meaning of baptism. And God assures me of that because every single one of us knows how often we fail. How often we fall back into the same sinful patterns. They're patterns because we fall back into them again and again and again. And through baptism, God says, I assure you, I assure you and promise to you, I'm doing a work in your life to cleanse you, to wash you more and more. And so the catechism asks us, how are you admonished and assured by holy baptism? Baptism assures me, it comforts me by the promises of remission of sins and sanctification, and it admonishes me. Baptism admonishes me. When you see that sprinkling of the water, you are to hear God say to you, believe in Jesus Christ, because there is your forgiveness, there is your salvation. And you are to hear God say to you, don't walk in those sins anymore. Put off those sinful ways. Put on the new man. I have given you the power of the Holy Spirit. Like Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1, having these promises, let us cleanse ourselves of all filthiness of flesh and spirit. That's what God says to you in baptism and to me. Cleanse yourself. I will work in you. More and more to do that. That's the gospel. That's the meaning of baptism. That gospel of baptism is to be preached. And when that gospel of baptism is preached, there is also a calling to baptize. We read Matthew 28. And in the end of that chapter, the Lord Jesus expresses the great commission to his apostles. Go and teach all nations, baptizing them 
in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, giving to them the sign and seal that through my precious blood I've washed away their sins and through my spirit I will sanctify them more and more. Go, he said to them, go, teach, preach, and baptize. And Jesus said, he who believes and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. In other words, we have a calling. We who have been baptized have a calling. We do not get baptized as a sign and seal of the washing away of our sins, the forgiveness of our sins, and our renewal through the Holy Spirit, to then keep that to ourselves. But we are baptized and we are saved to go forth into the world carrying that gospel because God is pleased through our preaching and teaching, through our witness as the church, to save the rest of his elect and to give them also the sign and seal of baptism. The calling to baptize is only given to the minister of the gospel. But the calling to baptize is also a calling that is more broad. It's a calling to the whole church to be a witness in the midst of the world. Often when we think of the world around us, we think of the fact that how filthy and wretched and polluted they are. We think of the putrid stench that rises up to heaven from the wicked world with their sexual revolution, with their unbelief, with all their atheism and agnosticism, with all of their false religions and all the abominations of their religions. And we think of how wicked the world is and we turn down our noses at the world. But the Lord says, oh yes, that's true. The world is wretched and corrupt and filthy, just like you. But I and my grace have saved and redeemed you. Now go and witness to them. That's what the Lord says to us. The Lord Jesus Christ didn't just shed his blood on the cross for us who are sitting here this morning and for Christians who are sitting in the other churches throughout the world today. But he shed his blood on the cross for all the elect and every nation, kindred, tribe, and tongue. And many of the elect are born and raised in false heathen religions. That's why the gospel is sent into the world. God has elected those people. We don't know who they are, but he's elected them. There could be people right here in Wingham who are unbelievers, who live like heathens, who live a wicked and corrupt life right now, but God elected them. And God's good pleasure is to use our little congregation to witness to them. That may be. How often do we think about that? And that may be the case throughout our denomination, wherever one of our churches and wherever a true church is located, in that city, in that town, in that place. God may have his elect there, but how often do the churches just keep it to themselves? How often do we do that? We don't bother to speak to them. We don't bother to reach out to them. And then we develop this attitude, too, that the ministers are for us. They're for our edification. They're for our comfort. They're for our churches. It's too expensive to send out missionaries. 
We don't have enough ministers to send out missionaries. We don't, we don't have time for that right now. We easily fall into that way of thinking. We must not. We have a calling to baptize. A calling. Go, Jesus says, teach and baptize. It's the calling of missions. Often in our Protestant Reformed missions, we have focused on people who are already baptized. Sometimes we even make an excuse of that. We say perhaps that, well, it seems to me that the Lord has only called our churches to reach out to the lost sheep of Israel, to those who are already baptized, to those who are already Christians, and they just want to learn more. They want to become Reformed. Well, that's good. Maybe we are particularly strong in that kind of work. Let's maybe not call it missions as much as calling it reformation. It's really more reformation work. When we reach out to those who are already baptized or already Christians, who already believe in Jesus, but they want to learn the reformed faith, that's good. We are, we've always done that kind of mission work. But my position has been, we must not make an excuse and say, that's all we're called to do. Because we don't know how to do the harder mission work of reaching out to the Buddhists and the Muslims and the Hindus and the atheists. No. Jesus said, teach all nations, go into all the world. Push, push into the boundaries and the frontiers of the unreached, the unbaptized, the unchurched. Preach the gospel to them. You have a calling to baptize. We have that calling as a church. Christ calls our local congregation to be busy in that as well. You've seen in the bulletin that we now have an evangelism committee because the council agrees with that. The council agrees. And I hope and pray that we all agree that we too as a local congregation have a calling. We who have been baptized, who have received the blessings of baptism, have a calling to bear witness to those around us. The purpose of an evangelism committee in a church is not now that we can all now say the evangelism committee is going to do that. We don't have to do it. The evangelism committee will do that. Rather, the purpose of an evangelism committee is to promote that and to encourage and facilitate and organize that work that we are all called to do. We're all called to be witnesses to those around us. We all have a duty. Jesus said in Matthew 10, If you will confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father. But if you deny me before men, I will deny you. That's Reformed, too. The Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 12 points out, that if you take the name Christian, then what you're saying is, I'm a prophet, priest, and king. I have the same anointing as Jesus. And that means that as a prophet, whether I'm a male or female, I have the ability and the calling, as I have opportunity, to confess Christ before men. We have many fears. We have many insecurities. We all have different gifts, that's true. 
We have different opportunities, that's true. But the calling comes to all of us. I love the passage in 1 Thessalonians 1, where Paul says to the Thessalonians that the gospel came to you in power and not only in word. And what is the evidence of that? From you, he says, sounded out or echoed forth the word of the Lord in all Macedonia and in all Achaia. So that we apostles don't even need to speak anything. Everywhere we go, we find that people have already heard from you. You know, ministers are just a a handful of, of people. They can only do so much. Ministers don't have contact with all the people that you have contact with. But a congregation is a whole body of people who have a life that is interconnected with Neighbors, co-workers, relatives who are not believers. Echo what you hear in church. Echo it to your neighbors. It's very rare that we in the Reformed churches see an adult baptism. Once in a while. But it's rare. There are probably Protestant Reformed churches who have never had an adult baptism. Well, Infant baptism is wonderful, and we will consider that truth next Lord's Day, God willing. We do believe in infant baptism. We do love the truth of the covenant that God continues with us and our children. But we have a calling to baptize believers, adult believers. There are not going to be any adult believers if we as a church do not reach out to the adults who are unbelievers. So what a wonderful thing it would be if through our evangelism we would see converts even in our own church. Would you rejoice in that? Would you consider that a joy and something to thank God for or a nuisance? I hope not a nuisance. Sometimes we have visitors in our church and our attitude should be a positive one. Our attitude should be, who is that person? Let's embrace them. Let's welcome them. Let's get to know them. Let's reach out to them. And it may be that the Lord will use our outreach to baptize. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, we give thee thanks for the gospel of baptism and for the many blessings that thou hast bestowed upon us, the riches of baptism. We thank thee that our Lord Jesus Christ has shed his precious blood that we might have the forgiveness of our sins. Father, grant that that blessing, which we hear preached Sunday after Sunday, might never become in our hearts and to our ears just the same old ordinary thing. But grant that as we consider our sins that we have committed this week and this day, we might be filled with joy and gladness to hear, once again, they are all washed away through the precious blood of Christ. May that be the power that sends us forth, striving to fight against all sin and to show forth thy salvation.